0: Ethel's Travel Tales, Accounts from an Addicted Travel Photographer Fire and Ice, Volcanoes Since childhood, I have been enthralled by volcanoes. Although I've seen lots of evidence of their ancient activity, it was the ones that were in the process of changing the landscape that I wanted to see. In my travels, I've been fortunate enough to watch some actual eruptions, with their spewing lava, smoke, and ash, proving that the earth is still being formed. April 1990, Hawaii, USA. Today, we flew over the volcano. Kilauea is active, pouring out lava via its vent, Pu'o, Everything here is poo-something or cause something I can see flowing lava all over Hawaii, a.k.a. the Big Island, particularly well from the helicopter. We flew over the steaming crater and could see, through the smoke, the orange-red lava bubbling beneath. Below were the skylights, holes in the charred black lava tubes through which the lava flowed, again that unmistakable orange color. Most exciting, we saw the lava actually flowing through the newly created earth. It reached the road and it looked like burning paper, black with glowing red edges. Chimia Black Sand Beach is gorgeous too, mostly due to the surrealistic black carpet formed by ancient lava worn down over time. It's a perfect dream beach with a little bay and a coconut palm grove and an arc around it. The fine sand was so black it sparkled, especially against the fringe turquoise blue of the sea. Later on on the trip, I was staying on the Big Island quite close to where the volcano was disgorging its lava. It was possible to get quite close to see how the red-hot, violently orange stream was heading towards the road. Slow but steady, it crawled relentlessly down, oblivious to anything in its path. Brush, trees, grass all stayed as if awaiting a fiery death sentence. Occasionally, the lava would separate, going round a patch and then rejoining below. The little touch of greenery that was spared, known as a pocket forest, I'm sure felt divinely saved. Over the next few days, I watched the volcanic effluent getting closer and closer. I spotted a couple of houses looking right in the middle of where the flow was going to go. The lava got nearer and nearer. At the residence that was further away from the event, a team of men arrived and started hoisting it onto a plinth. They struggled, desperately attempting to raise the building before the wood went up in flames. In the meantime, the scene was getting hotter and hotter. A few days later, the lower house was eventually raised, transferred onto the back of a waiting truck, and then driven out of harm's way. Not long after, The lava reached the first house. The now regularly assembled group of tourists, myself included, watched how it caught fire, burned, and eventually disappeared into a pile of ash. There was no longer anything else that could be done. An offshoot of the main flow appeared quite close to where I was standing. I approached it, seeing that bright glowing orange-red. A few volcanologists stood by explaining the different kinds of lava as called in Hawaii. Pahoho is smooth and continuous, ropey, and as we just saw, unstoppable. There were traces of previous examples all over the island, black and lumpy shaped. The other well-known sort is known as a'a, rather more a crust than the flow. I could see the stream getting very close when some national park rangers stopped me. I couldn't go any further for my own safety. Stepping back, I could see that soon my way would be blocked, or cooked, so I duly obeyed, returning to safer ground. The next day, I saw the saved house, still on the back of the truck, with a big for-sale sign on it. I had imagined this building had been something of sentimental value, but I suppose it was just being rescued for potential revenue. February 1995, Arenal Volcano, Costa Rica. Costa Rica, 6 a.m. The sky is clear, and I'm by a lake surrounded by mountains. The mountain in the distance, in a swirl of clouds, is Arenal, a massive active volcano that periodically gives off building-shaking rumbles. I am in thrall. Yesterday, we went up to the observatory lodge built by the Smithsonian for that very purpose and watched huge billows of smoke exploding from the top. I refused to leave and we watched and listened for five hours. Last night after my guide little Erica drove the four-wheel drive vehicle through foul roads and heavy streams we sat and watched the red glows and trickling lava. It was too difficult to get night shots. We were seven kilometers away but I think the day views should be good. I've never experienced anything like that first thundery sound and seeing that blast emerge from the top of the volcano. In fact, it was rather surreal. Because of the sound, it took longer than we actually saw the volcano erupt. So there it was, a plume of smoke, and then suddenly, maybe half a second later, a boom. It was very strange. In fact, I was wonderfully shaken to my foundations. From the observatory lodge, we were two kilometers away from the summit, and it filled my 55-millimeter wide-angle lens. Right now, I'm sitting on the balcony, the lake ahead, the volcano at two o'clock, the sunrise at three. I can hear the wind and the birds. Wow. It seems the volcano experience blew away most anything else I can remember from Costa Rica. The next day, Erica and I got more views, then went on to Tabacon, This place is a resort with an idyllic series of beautifully laid out hot springs, pools, fountains coming directly from Arunel Mountain. Imagine open-air water of botanical gardens in the shadow of an active volcano. Is this a glimpse of paradise? Or hell? October 2006. Hawaii. Again! The year before, I had just returned from a year's journey around the continental United States. I longed to go further and now decided it was time to revisit the island of Hawaii. An old college buddy, Ted, was there and despite our 30-year friendship, I had hardly seen him during this period. A trip was arranged. Ted and his wife, Lisa, lived on the big island, Hawaii. Ted was a secondary school science teacher and had always been a volcano lover, just like me. He now resided in a town of that name, Just down the road was Volcanoes National Park, and Ted tried to spend as much time there as possible. Being a fan myself, I couldn't resist when he suggested we take a look. At what seemed like always, the volcano was active. A first visit was to depart to the park where the lava had passed recently. This brand new land crunched very slightly underfoot. In the distance, a plume of smoke was visible where the flow was burning the plant life beneath it. Not good enough, said Ted. Let's go where it's a bit easier to see. Getting in the car, we drove to another spot. A barrier was up, but it was simple enough to walk beyond it. Another much higher gray spout was visible. Here was where the lava had reached the sea. What we saw was a combination of the heat of the often more than thousand-degree outpouring and the steam Where it hit the water. We could almost hear the hiss. Let's go, said Ted as he clambered over the dark remains of an eruption that clearly happened not long ago. On he crunched while I tenuously placed each foot on that brand new soil. At one point we stopped and he pointed out the skylight. Beneath us, through a black hole in a black tunnel, was a brilliant red moving glow. The lava was continuing to flow underneath our feet. At this point, I was fearful to go on, but the intrepid science teacher walked on, heading to the very edge of the cliff. I crept just near enough to catch a glimpse of Ted taking photos. From where I was standing, I could see the heat-steam mix just as the lava hit the water, and I took a few of my own steps. In the distance, I saw Ted silhouetted against a massive pillar of smoke. Yes, he did return safely, but I was happy enough keeping my distance. April 2010, Iceland, Æfjætjökull. I'm a big fan of the country of Iceland. I was fortunate enough to work for a major Icelandic specialist tour operator and took advantage as much as I could to visit the place. When Thomas Cook sent me there to write a photograph, a book on Reykjavik, I was extremely happy. It also gave me a chance to get to know the island even better, as the proposed text was to include excursions beyond the city. What makes the land so amazing is its huge variety of earth-shaping features. Like a child who's never quite grown up, I love glaciers, those massive ancient blocks of ice that create their own landscapes. Even more exciting are the volcanoes and their constant threat of one about to erupt. To that end, I was on Volcano Watch. The idea was that when one of the mountains began to show signs of possible explosion, I would be contacted and ideally jump on a plane to fly to Reykjavik and watch the explosion. It sounds easier than it was. So many contingencies are involved. What if it were to stop the instant I arrived? What if it was too dangerous to get there? Could I transport both to the country and to the site be possible, especially at short notice? And most importantly, could I afford the time and the money? In April 2010, IF began to act up. This was in the same area I had hiked 13 years before. It now looked as if that trail would be covered up permanently by lava, putting an end to that famous walk. More importantly for the moment, however, was that it was erupting in the way photographers dream about, a small, bright, dramatic burst, easily and safely accessible, yet very photogenic. I was contacted. Should I go? What if the eruption stopped as soon as I got there? What if something exploded and it was no longer safe? Even more worrying, how could I depend on the weather to be good enough for me not only to take pictures, but also even just visit the site? I tentatively decided not to pursue it further. But over the weekend, I weakened, and when I spoke to one of my photo libraries and asked them what they thought, they said, I should definitely go. My partner then said he knew I would risk it even before I did. Hastily arranged, with little regard to the cost, as the closest option the hotel was a four-star resort, base for the operations, I booked the trip. The next day, I was on a flight to Reykjavik. I landed at Keflavik Airport in the afternoon, got in the rental car, and drove straight to the hotel. The forecast for the next day was iffy, so the instant I arrived, I went straight to the reception and said, I want to see the volcano. my bags were still at my side. The people at the desk hemmed and hawed, saying there were no excursions available till the next day, when a couple came up to me. They heard what I had said and mentioned that they had arranged a super jeep with another couple to go up, but that the others had cancelled. If I could split the cost with them, they'd be delighted for me to join them. Absolutely, I replied, had the hotel store my bags and jumped into the awaiting vehicle. Off we went. Although the Hotel Rango was the closest tourist base to the volcano, it was still quite a long way to drive. Located to the west of the activity, we had to get to the site from the east, driving up the mountain. Over the glacier, surrounded by all the other super jeeps on similar excursions, there were tracks in the ice everywhere. When I asked the driver if he was worried about the pollution that all these vehicles gave off, he answered, the amount that the jeeps produced was nothing compared to the output of the volcano. We came closer, beginning to see the smoke rising straight up in the distance. After a few hours in the same direction, suddenly the color changed from gray to red. We had arrived at the plateau. Less than one kilometer away, we saw the little craters spewing bursts of lava that looked as if a child had drawn them. They were perfect to photograph with plumes that grew brighter as the sun began to go down. In the approaching dusk, the fountaining became more and more prominent as we spotted other spouts nearby. It was getting colder. In fact, it became extremely cold despite the proximity of the eruptions. It was only when I felt I had taken enough pictures that I stopped and realized what the temperature was. We got back into the heated Jeep, and our guide drove us a bit further down the hill. Guards were placed there by the government in order to tell all us tourists how far we were allowed to go. We pulled up next to a black trail of lava, still warm and crunchy after its arrival, perhaps only an hour or two earlier. Through a hole, we could see the orange-red glowing flow making its way down. I picked up a bit of this embryonic piece of earth, still sticky from being so newly formed. Eventually, it was time to go and I reluctantly, if somewhat freezing, got into the vehicle with my fellow passengers. Our driver still stopped at various viewpoints for us to get our last shots of the day. As if to reassure us it was a wise move, we caught glimpses of the aurora borealis, the northern lights, on our way down. The entire excursion was magnificent. Next day, As expected, the next day wasn't good for volcano watching. Although the sun was out, there was too much wind to be able to go up. I took the car that I had rented and drove along the south coast visiting my favorite waterfalls, Seljallansfoss and Skoyafoss. Due to the time of year, they were ice frosted, making my photos even better. When I returned to the hotel, I was able to take advantage of my private hot spring heated outdoor pool. Life is tough sometimes. The following day. Much better weather today and I arranged a helicopter shoot. Leaving from the hotel's parking area, we took off during the day, heading due east over the mountains. There I got aerial views of the eruptions, flying right over the craters, still expelling their contents. On the return, I could see the lava flowing down the steep ravines, the moving bright lines standing out against the dark stone cliffs. And then... When I spent another night, it was time to get back to England. I drove back to the airport, returned the car, and flew home. I was delighted with the pictures I had taken, a subject that had been on my bucket list since I began taking photographs. A couple of weeks later, despite the Icelandic National Tourist Office hoping that these little natural phenomena would continue in order to attract tourists, not long after they stopped. However, soon after that, Eyjafjallajökull Yat really put on a show, waking everyone up by putting on a massive eruption, blasting up rocks and ash high up into the sky. It was such a big event that all air traf- traffic had to be cancelled, as the output could fly into engines and cause the planes to crash. For nearly a week, there were no flights over the Atlantic.